Welcome to the World Architecture Festival podcast. This series features recordings from the live festival and WAF's virtual events. Hear from architects and commentators discussing the latest innovations and challenges within the industry. Subscribe to always receive the latest episodes and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at WorldArcFest. Well, welcome to the second international question time that we've conducted at World Ar Architecture Festival virtual uh, this week. Uh, we had an intriguing uh, session yesterday um, with speakers um, from uh, Seattle uh, and uh, Los Angeles and Copenhagen. Uh, we've got an even more diverse uh, group uh, with us today. Um, and so welcome Maria Warner-Wong of uh, Warner-Wong Design and WOW Architects, uh, Patrick Bellew, uh, Founding Director of Atelier 10, uh, Christoph Ingenhoven of Ingenhoven Architects, Joe Noero of Noero Architects, Simon Orford, Founding Director at Orford Hall Monaghan Morris and President-Elect of the Royal Institute of British Architects, uh, Alison Brooks, Principal and Creative Director at Alison Brooks uh, Architects. Uh, and uh, joining us at some point, Benedetta Taliabue, <coughs> co-founder and CEO of Morales Taliabue, EMBT uh, Barcelona, as I'm sure you know. Uh, and of course, my WAF colleague, uh, Jeremy Melvin. Um, I'm going to um, chair this, uh, this, this, this conversation and, and discussion. Um, and I'd like to kick off by uh, uh, asking you each in turn how you have been dealing personally uh, with this very strange year uh, where you've been working from and what impact it's had on your organization uh, or your practice in, the in terms of uh, the way you're working. Uh, so why don't we, why don't we kick off uh, with uh, Patrick Bellew. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. Good afternoon, Paul, Jeremy. Nice to see you all, Maria. Um, it's it's been an interesting year. I mean, we're lucky in the in some ways in terms of practicing this because we've got offices from all over the all over the place, from um, San Francisco to to Singapore to to, San, to uh, Sydney, and so we've been quite used to working and doing design work. Uh, on online and do, using Zoom and, and other these these tools for for, develop, for running the business, so running the business hasn't been too hard. Um, running the project has been slightly more difficult, I think. I think they really missed the the creative time sat around the table and able just to chat and exchange yeah. views. The kind of staccato nature of Zooming makes design, I think, a much longer and harder process to 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 work at. So. But we have largely stayed out of the studio. We've, we've been doing most things online, all the analysis work and feedback work and, and design work with our architect friends and colleagues. I'm, I'm an engineer, by the way, um, with Atelier 10 rather than an architect. Um, and, and so we've we found it's been it's been okay. We've, we've run projects with some of the people here on the call every year and really not had too many stumbles along the way. I think you know you, you don't, one just misses that creative process and I particularly miss the bouncing off people at events like WAF where you get to meet large numbers of people um, sort of by, through osmosis that you just that really, really missed that this year, that that kind of um, engagement and the industry working together as a kind of in, in the, uh, brought together in the way that WAF does is, is so effective. 
I think, Patrick, you should mention um, your happy recent announcement because you include, included concluded uh, an important step in the life of, of your office just recently, um, despite lockdowns and all the rest of it. Yeah, we've we've had a, a conversation going on with um, a group called Sabana Jerong in, in Singapore for the last uh, 18 months or so. Um, and uh, we concluded a, a, the, the negotiations for us to merge and become a part of their very large group, um, international group, um, just a few weeks ago. Um, it's great for us in that it gives us um, an enormous uh, access to markets in Asia and, and beyond in a way that we couldn't really do as a, a relatively small private enterprise of 300 or so people. So we've got that that that, uh, that deal has just has just closed recently. And yes, I'm running, working um, very happily. Uh, in Singapore and all over Asia already talking about opportunities there um, and in Australia and Canada with the group in, in Savannah Jerome. So thank you for mentioning that, Paul. I was resisting doing the commercial, but yeah, it's been it's been really good. And no, it's interesting that such a such an important negotiation can be conducted and concluded um, in in the rather difficult circumstances we've been experiencing. Um, I'm going to ask Christoph Ingenhoven to um, to tell us how things have been uh, for you uh, in Germany, pretty well managed, I think, by government. But how is it affecting uh, the practice and, and uh, architects there? Uh, hello. Uh, I mean, uh, it, was, it was difficult, I have to say, um, to adapt to that. Um, we, we directly went into a lockdown. We directly put 50% of the people in home office uh, in Singapore and in Germany. Um, and for, I would say, like the period until April, we stayed in home office um, in alteration. Then we, we, we realized that the people don't want to stay any longer in home office because uh, most of our staff is young, single, they are international. They're coming to Düsseldorf or Singapore to work, and they are they want to be with people, right? And so they get like lonesome. Um, so they went back to the office. Um, we rented more space. We we widened the, the workplaces um, so we could manage uh, according to the regulations. Um, and it's still the same. I think then they are all in the office. Maybe they are two or three percent or five percent in home office, but that's the exemption from the rule. Everybody is working. Nobody got Corona or COVID. Nobody. Uh, no family member. No no staff. Um, so it went quite well at the end. Technically spoken, medi medically spoken. Um, I have to say the discussion about what home office is about and if it is helpful. I mean, we all seem to be all in home office more or less, right? I mean, if I look around where, where all the people sit, it's more or less their home or somewhere. Um, so we were all like used to do that over our traveling um, policy that we had, right? The way we worked and lived the last 20 years was a little bit like that as head of office or like like uh, people who are responsible. But for the staff, it's a very difficult situation, I think. And, and to do from my point of view, nearly impossible to remotely. Um, you have to be together with the people. And, and we, we, we did a lot of effort um, to, to, to bring the people together safely um, and have a little bit of a minimum of working together on the table. But we had as well like off, uh, uh, projects in Melbourne and Sydney and wherever, Tokyo and so on. And, and we had to do that online. 
um, and it was somehow possible. My impression is every work relation that is established, every project team that is established is pretty well. Um, to do acquisition, uh, it's very difficult. Yeah? To get to know new people, who very difficult. Yeah? So, uh, so we try to travel as much as it was possible. Like closing down now. In Europe, you could travel like Great Britain, Switzerland, Austria, and, and so on. It was quite good, quite possible, uh, especially during the summer. Um, but now they're closing down everything. I mean, even Switzerland, Austria, Germany are not open anymore. So they are putting it all again uh, to a real lockdown. I think we have to look what is coming out. Our success, I mean, economically, it was a successful year, I have to say. Surprisingly. I always think the crisis in architecture is coming later with uh, postponement. Yeah? So it's, it's next year that might be very difficult economically. Yes, that would, that, that, that's an ominous uh, thought. Um, I'm going to uh, come to London now and uh, invite uh, Alison Brooks to uh, tell us what's your experience, Alison, both of kind of workload and the working life of the practice. Well, I, I feel um, really fortunate, a little bit similar to Christoph, that we've had a very good year. It, it became very busy in about June, which was amazing. Um, I mean, we already had quite a lot of work and teams working sort of flat out doing huge construction document packages and actually the type of work where actually being remote and working on teams was very effective in um, enabling teams to communicate with each other sort of fluidly, more fluidly than they had found it actually being in the office, which is very interesting. Um, it's amazing how even in, you know, one office with a big space, you can not actually interact with people in your own office. And, and I think that's been a very interesting sort of phenomenon. Also the fact that, um, you know, as a principal or a practice leader in project team meetings, you're face to face with everybody on the team from the new graduate to the, to the associate. And so you, um, I think that's been very interesting that in, in a way, uh, younger people in the practice have had more face time and more contact with um, more senior people in the practice and clients and, uh, you know, the GLA and the LLDC, it, you know, a lot of face-to-face. -face. And I think in a, to a certain extent, we've all found this kind of exhausting, like too much too much FaceTime um, with colleagues and um, clients. But in a way, I think it's been very good for younger people and practices. Um, I think also it's been a, a good time for people who are engaged in professions that take a lot of planning you know it's been just a very good time to plan we've not all been uh, rushing around traveling um, as well as clients thinking you know this is a good time to get started on a project or to take a project forward because everybody's a little bit more um, reflective in terms of how they're operating on a day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week basis we've all had a bit more time to just you know, uh, get to grips with with things that need um, thought and planning. So we've been, yeah, we've been very fortunate. We've had new inquiries. We, there have been competitions and uh, we're, yeah. We're, but I also agree that people have 
really missed the um, convening in the office and the ability to have those off-the-cuff and serendipitous conversations that are interesting and enlightening. They don't even have to be architectural. It's just what you did at the weekend or a book you're reading or a, a radio show or just little inputs that add to a kind of um, thinking uh, conversational culture that's creative somehow. And so we've been coming back into the office, half the office, Monday, Tuesday, half the office, Thursday, Friday, bit of flexibility in between and very, very important for new, new members of staff for sure. Well, yes. And it's, um, it's rather difficult to have spontaneous conversations if it requires you to book a zoom, uh, meeting, uh, in advance. <laughs> Um, it's it's a bit like sort of compulsory fun or brainstorming for one hour exactly, uh, not, not a minute yeah. more and, and not, not a minute less. Um, I'm going and, to and turn also to Joan Oero. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say it's also really hard to get them to end, but you must be um, very good at that by now, getting like Zoom conversations to finish. <laughs> Uh, well, yes, we have to, and we've got a time clicker on our screen, which is, is a wonderful, <laughs> a wonderful discipline. Uh, Joan Oero, uh, how are things in, in South Africa, and are the sort of trends you've seen in response to uh, the pandemic, um, are, are they continuations of things that were happening anyway, or is it a kind of brand new condition to deal with? Uh, well, Paul... Um... You know, I, I run a small practice and there's seven of us and we're like a family. So working from home hasn't been a problem because we're in regular contact every day. Um, we happen to be lucky that we live in probably the most beautiful city in the world. <laughs> and we all live in beautiful parts of the city. So to be at home for me is a real pleasure. I mean, Joy and I get up in the morning and we take the dogs for a walk on the beach, which is two minutes away from our house. And that's how we start our day. So we've been in so-called lockdown since March. We haven't been back to the office. Um, but South Africa is a bit of a mess at the moment because we have a very poor economy, which was, which, you know, was uh, present before the lockdown. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, we have, so we have politics, economics and health all collapsing into each other and um, it's not been a pleasant period in those it hasn't been a pleasant period i mean our economy is on its knees we've achieved junk status uh, there's very little work what work there is is not very nice and so we're all just hoping and praying that the vaccine will be we'll be able to get the vaccine in africa rather than it go to the rich countries which looks like they're Sorry, we just lost Joe there for a bit, so I'm going to uh, move on uh, and invite uh, Maria Warner Wong, Wong to tell us. We've heard a bit about Singapore already, but um, how are things for WOW Architects? Um, well, things have been interesting here because we're in a country where, as you know, it's a country where there's a high degree of control. So pretty much everything is under control, including COVID. So we're very fortunate to have had a very low incidence, a relatively low incidence of COVID and very, very few deaths. And um, things have been kind of relatively peaceful and calm. 
we are almost carrying on in a normal manner in most aspects or many aspects of life, except for in the world of work, where we still aren't entirely permitted to have complete return to work in the office. And in the meantime, a whole lifestyle movement around working from home has transformed many of the architects on our team into true believers. And they're very, very happy to have a, a home-based working lifestyle that enables them to do their work, to have a balanced life, to take time for leisure and well, personal well-being and other aspects of life that commuting kind of takes away. So we're really re-looking at how we work and we're looking into also how we're going to work with clients because it's a complete change. But what I find very exciting is that we're now starting to have virtual interactions with people that we wouldn't have had interactions with unless we were prepared to travel in the past. And as you know, Singapore is far from where most of our work and most of our clients are. And now we find that travel is no longer a barrier to communication and connection. So I think that beyond COVID, there's going to be some good coming out of the technology that has kind of taken over our way of working. And um, But for the meantime, our office is quite quiet. Our work is proceeding. The construction is ongoing, albeit we do expect there to be some setbacks. And um, it's mostly our clients in many, many countries in the region and beyond who are in more uncertain situations and uh, sort of waiting to see when it's safe to proceed with projects. Thank you very much. And I'm going to uh, invite Benedetta, uh, welcome, uh, to say a few words about how your office has been working uh, and how is Barcelona? Hello, Paul, and hello, everybody. Uh, uh, Barcelona is fantastic as usual, but it's it's sad. It's in a sad moment, really. Everything closed and uh, so little people around. And and I think this pandemic is so long that it had many different phases. So at the beginning, everybody was uh, surprised and scared, and we ran home in in one day uh, like uh, refugees, uh, expecting the worst. And uh, it was incredible how fast we could organize ourselves. Let's say we just connected our computers so that everybody who wanted to work from home just was using their own computer. So it was incredible for the people who were going in the office. One of two of us were going sometimes. Uh, the computers were working by themselves. We were an office of ghosts. It was absolutely an incredible image. And we were on very connected. We were trying our best. But after three months, you realize that really something is missing. You can go on access to every information, be in contact, blah, blah, blah. But uh, we, are, we are creative people. And I realize more than, uh, uh, than in any other moment that we are an industry. We are a creative industry. So we need to be open. We need to be together. And uh, with this decision from uh, May, June on, uh, we started to go back to the office, which is very open, very big. Uh, we have external uh, space. We always have the open windows. And we were so lucky to be able to do that until now um, and because the weather is fantastic. And, and we, we, we make a very together life uh, in the open space. And, and we are back 
to work uh, in, in this creative way. Then you discover a lot of nice things. You know? For example, I was traveling to China very often and uh, I was traveling too often. I was tired. And now it's like having a real, a real holiday. I don't have to travel anymore. <laughs> it's fantastic. Very egoistically, I think it's fantastic. And, uh, and now with China, it's incredible. China is booming. Uh, I don't know, uh, two days ago, we had a kind of a presentation for a competition. And uh, when, uh, when the Zoom uh, made us uh, in the room, the room appeared to us and there was, uh, as usual, this enormous big table with something like 70, 80 people around. I think nobody had masks. And, and it seemed, uh, you know, life is coming back and, and a lot of things are happening. So uh, the world is, uh, is, uh, is very different, but now we are learning uh, that something's possible to do with this fantastic technology. Something else is better to do uh, life. <laughs> so I, 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 I propose the mix. <laughs> Thank you very much, Benedetta. And, um... Yes, definitely. Live events are happening uh, in China. Um, the inaugural uh, World Architecture Festival China event took place, which was an awards presentation ceremony, and it took place on Tuesday of this week uh, in Chengdu with about 250 people there, um, many of whom had, had won awards which were judged remotely by, by international juries that we helped uh, our Chinese partners to uh, select. Um, we had a super jury and picked six marvelous uh, projects that were presented with trophies uh, out in Chengdu. And um, they seem to have things under control. I hesitate to say even more than Singapore, but, but certainly life looks to be uh, pretty normal there. Well, perhaps I can come yeah. to Simon Alford in London. Simon, um, how's it been for AHMM and uh, what's the office like? Um, hi, I've just come from a visit to a stone factory to choose some stone for a project, which reminded me of the, all the problems of being on Zoom and Teams. So like everyone, you know, we've managed it and it's been fine and the world slowed down and there was a bit of a break, you know, and that was quite good. And we found a number of things. Like Christoph, we found that no one we really know or deal with has been affected by the, by the illness. Um, so in that sense, there hasn't been any kind of personal impact. We found interesting things. We found the young were mobile but disconnected from broadband and they had no space. We found the older ones of us had space and broadband, but we were less able. Um, like Patrick, we've trialed it with um, international offices. We've trialed it with colleagues who've left and work on their own in another country who we've kept on employing. So we were quite well set up. So for three months, it was fine. Since then, I personally have been back in the office since June. I like talking to people. I like meeting them face to face. I like drawing on drawings. I like drawing on the wall. I like kind of the, the conversation. I, I like the stimulation. I don't like sitting with a headphone here in this office of mine that's very nice. I like the bigger office. We've got about 
10, 15% of our staff coming back. I hope more will come back. So, I mean, I think it's been a real challenge and I think it's accelerated good things. The shock means we're not traveling. The shock means we're thinking more about carbon and these kinds of things and, and the world around us, um, you know, embodied and operational. So, so I think the shock has been kind of, in an optimistic way, you take it on, you do what Joe did, you go walking on the beach, which I can't do in London, but um, you, it's kind of ener energized people. But we definitely found um, after about three or four months, we needed to get people back in a room. And now people are coming in for a day or two. And I think in the post COVID, in the vaccine world, there's a lot of good stuff we'll take in there. There'll be lots of uh, junior members of staff will be able to listen to meetings they previously couldn't attend. But if you're not in the office and you're not meeting people and you're not listening to their conversations, if you're not bouncing ideas off them, I think you know you lose the whole benefit of being in a city and a place and a, and, and a culture. So I mean, our joke is the office is dead. Long live the office. But I think you know <laughs> the good things we're interested in, which is the idea about coming together creatively to be industrious to generate you know ideas. Um, we need to convene physically, but maybe less often, and we can supplement that with these other technologies. So it's going to be exciting. I think it'll reboot. As a business, we've, we're fine. We've shrunk a little bit, but that's all right. We paid out a small profit share. You know, we have enough work. We haven't had to make anyone redundant, but that isn't what everyone's experienced. I know some people have found it really tough. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to see if we can get back to uh, Joe at this point. Uh, Joe, can you hear us? Yes, I, I can. Sorry about that. It's just um, to explain to the international listeners is that uh, we've had a, a very serious bout of corruption in our state-owned enterprises, which means that we have an irregular power supply in South Africa. And that means that every now and then things just go blank. So my apologies, but blame it on the government. But um, what I was no, going to say no is No problem. That, uh, I, yeah. I just wanted to pick it's, up it's where we like were sort of leave. It's a bit like your three-day working week in 1973, Paul, except we can never predict when it's going to hit us. You know, um, but uh, just to say that um, we're, we're all coping here and... Uh, um, I think now's the time in South Africa for uh, a bit of courage and imagination, and we have to just stand fast, and hopefully we'll get through this period, but it's not pleasant. And um, I'm afraid I, I can't, I don't want to put a gloss on it. It's, it's, it's pretty unpleasant. And um, we just you know, live from day to day and hope that things will get better. We're, we're about to hit a second uh, phase of our, um, um, of, of the you know second peak of the pandemic, and our uh, medical facilities are really overstretched. Um, you know we, we unlike more developed countries, you know if we get a large number of people who are very ill, we just don't have the space nor do we have the equipment really to look after them. So we have to be very careful about wearing masks and social distancing and stuff like that. But uh, it's we're we're doing fine. Anyhow, and it's lovely to hear other people in other parts of the world who are surviving and doing very well. Um, that's good to know. At least the architectural profession is not dying globally. It's just struggling in some parts of the world, but in other parts of the world it seems to be flourishing, which is nice to hear. 
Thanks very much for that, Joe. And I'm now going to ask Jeremy Melvin to give us a reflection and perhaps um, uh, contrast with some of the things that we heard yesterday or pick up on some of the themes, for example, the way in which the, 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 the not traveling has allowed more time for thinking. Well, <clears throat> it's often the case that um, a downturn in economic activity leads to enormous innovation. I mean, if you, uh, the, the greatest downturn in recent history in the early 1930s actually saw a whole new range, not just of organizations, but also of industries emerging. <clears throat> and in the 1970s, architecture, and I'm thinking here particularly about architecture, underwent an enormous sort of revision and, and period of innovation. A lot of it, not all of it obviously, but a lot of it coming out of the Architectural Association then run by Arvin Bayarsky. And many of the people who came through that are still prominent. I mean, Rem Courthouse, Zaha Hadid may be dead, but a practice certainly lives on. Stephen Hull, who we heard about from Peter Cook. Um, what that did was to allow a period, Not it's not like, you know, going to sleep or, 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 or locking yourself away in your back bedroom with a series of books. It's actually a change in mental state, I think. I want to um, pick that point up about the uh, potential benefits in terms of uh, thinking about doing the same thing in different ways or possibly doing different things uh, in new ways. And again, I'll come e to each of you in turn um, to invite you to perhaps speculate about some of the things that will change in your world, not in the way you work. I think we've dealt with the, with the Zoom business. Uh, but in the way that um, the, the design, the built environment design professionals may be thinking about the buildings that you're creating, uh, the public spaces that you generate, uh, and in fact, the way that uh, we, we design our cities uh, for use and for health uh, and for leisure. Um, and I'm, I'm going to start with a, a non-architect because um, Patrick, actually environmental engineering in the last, shall we say, 25 years, has undergone extraordinary changes and has become uh, significantly more influential in the way we think about the world, largely, largely as a result of climate change. Um, how do you see things uh, moving forward now? And do you think that the effects of the pandemic will really uh, change what was happening? Um, or will it, may it, reinforce it it's I, i'd say that um <clears throat> yeah it's, it's only 25 or 30 years of conversations seem to have accelerated in the last 12 months um in the uk beyond beyond recognition um i would probably speculate that um in germany and holland and, and scandinavia potentially these conversations have been going on for longer and in more detail but i think that we're seeing um in the UK, the US, in Australia, in our offices there, we're seeing a, a complete, a massive change in, in clients' attitudes to it. So it's very much um, sort of ground up. It's, it's partly coming from our junior staff, you know, flowing through that way, through enthusiasm for climate change issues. And it's in really strongly flowing down from our clients. Um, all of our clients are asking us now to, um, it's almost their first question, you know, how green is my building got to be to be rentable, sellable, or whatever. 
it, it's, it's fundamentally changed in the last 12 months, I think. Simon alluded to it already that, you know, we, we started to see um, in the early days of COVID uh, a preoccupation with things like air quality and how might, how might buildings adapt to a sort of a, a world where pandemics are potentially more, more of a design driver. And so we've already been looking at nearly all of the buildings, large and small, moving back to kind of mixed mode on natural ventilation and kick back against fully sealed buildings, um, rightly or wrongly. Uh, but I, I think probably rightly. Um, and so we're looking at more and more mixed mode kind of types of, of, of um, propositions. Um, but most of all, the conversations around embodied carbon, recognizing that the, it's the carbon that we emit in making buildings right now is the, is the big, is, is becoming the biggest issue because with the electrification of the grid and with ever improving um, energy performance in buildings, the embodied carbon is is the biggest game in town and it fundamentally affects architecture, it fundamentally affects clients, it affects decision making around almost everything in the building process. And it adds another kind of layer of currency. It means that, you know, in every project we're starting to take carbon as a as a, as a cost plan, you know, a carbon plan as well as a cost plan and running the two things in parallel. And so and certainly a, a project we're doing right now with Simon has been positively forensic in that the all the different things that we've studied to try and absolutely drive the cost down. It's also been helped by RIBA and Letty releasing some hard targets earlier this year or end of last year and early this year in their sustainability guidelines, which have given sort of things for us to shoot at and things that, you know, and people love a target. The, the thing about Briam and, and Lead and those targets is they were too broad in some ways. They didn't give us enough you know, the real nitty gritty detail to shoot at about, is it timber, is it concrete, is it recycled? Is the material recycled, is it prime? Where does it come from? What blast furnace does it come from? We're starting to see, um, you know, manufacturers responding by actually having the information you want when you ask them so that they can be considered that you know that and once the architectural profession starts demanding this information, the supply chain will adjust to, to, to supply it in, in a way that it never previously has. So we're seeing really fundamental shift in, in the kind of focus in the absolutely in the last 12 months. Um, and I can't tell you how many calls I've been on in the last 12, nine months through COVID, through the outbreak, uh, just on this on the embodied carbon issue. It's, and it's great. It's finally coming to focus. Now, we've been tracking it on projects for 20 years, but now it's there's some real hard, good thinking going on. And the materials market is following along quickly behind and improving, which is what you need. Now, can you, a, is, the is, the is the implication of this that we will become increasingly concerned with retrofitting of the existing and it may become increasingly uh, difficult or, or looked down on uh, to demolish existing buildings where there's significant embodied carbon involved? To some extent, that there's, if you've got a building that is... Um, is you know, can be reused effectively. Um, absolutely, the, the embodied carbon argument is definitely one of the the, the the means by which you choose. I think if a building is fundamentally unfit for purpose or can't be extended, or the floor to ceiling heights aren't enough, there may be sometimes cases for, for demolition. Uh, that's in the case of a regeneration or redevelopment. What we're seeing in New York, uh, they've just released Local Law 97 which uh, established a hard per square foot greenhouse gas emission cap for all buildings. And if they don't achieve those targets, um, they will be pinged uh, $280 a tonne per year for every additional tonne of carbon emitted. So there's a deep green retrofit of existing buildings, whether they were going to be renovated or not, the owners are having and do major green upgrades. 
Uh, it's triggered an entire new market in New York, um, which is spreading out around the uh, a little bit on the other cities on the East Coast of so Boston, looking at it, so on. So we're starting to see also, you know, that we're not seeing it in London yet, but a requirement that existing buildings raise their game, and even when they're not going through a deep retrofit or a, or a, or a re, you know, whether whether or not the buildings are being uh, emptied out and, and redeveloped or not. So that's that's really where the next game in town is, and I think you know the, the your the, your question. I think presupposes that it's a, it's a development project of some sort to improve a building. Do you drop it or do you keep it? But I think what's really interesting in the states in addressing this is that they're starting through local laws. They're starting to drive in certain states of the states, I should say. It's not it's not everywhere, um, but you know they're starting to drive really significant um, greening of buildings through through local laws and and and, a, and a f putting fines on people if they don't achieve it. Big fines, you know, if you don't achieve it. Thank you very much. Um, I'm going to ask um, Christoph Ingenhoven to um, pick up on this subject because um, your practice has always been kind of at the forefront of German architects interested in sustainability and environmental design. Um, and I guess this must be, a, a, in a way, a, a kind of very pleasant time for you because ideas that you've supported have become mainstream. Ah, excuse me, I was moving. Um, in a way, it is, but um, I have to say that's a kind of acceleration, right? It's um, it's more intensity on that questions. Um, let me wrap that up uh, in three words. Um, I think the world of architecture has to think about avoiding, to build, to spend, whatever, avoiding. Then, if that is not possible, reduction in every meaning of that word. Uh, reduction of energy, resources, material, whatever. Uh, also, CO2 is a kind of spending, right? Uh, so it's, a, it's, a, it's an amount of carbon that we still have um, and that, that we can still spend as a world community. And that is absolutely limited. And if we go over, it's a real problem. Um, there's not much more time to, to think about that. It's, it's a time to act, right? And if reduction is not possible, the only other thing that we have to have to, to do is um, compensation if it's not possible. But that's the uh, that's least good way to, to deal with the problem, right? And that's, that's all I can say. I mean, um, and if everybody, if the architectural uh, community would spend more time and more energy in these questions, it would be a much better world. Um, to be honest, I felt the last 30 years a little lonesome sometimes because um, there are many people now talking about these issues, um, the last 10 years, whatever, 15 years. But I think it's still much too small number of people really acting seriously in this respect. Um, let me raise one more thing because you asked us also about what, what, what Corona, what um, pandemic things could change in our, our behavior as architects or city planners and so on. There's, there, there are many things, but um, also two things. One is, I think until um, instead of waiting for new regulations and certifications, we just should act in the most sensible way. Like, for giving you a very simple example, the number of elevators we have in high rises will be much more and bigger, right? Because otherwise we have no chance to avoid these kind of pandemic things. 
Um, that's the same with corridors, flexibility of spaces, uh, do it bigger, do it more smaller, things like that, more generous and so on. So I think we just should start doing these things. And there's one more political thing that's about public space. I think the value of public space has never been as big or as visible in that pandemic uh, situation. I was spending some months in London during the pandemic. I have to say the way that people used communal gardens and, and the parks and the, and, the, and, the, and the width of the city was impressive. And I think that's the best, that's the best outcome, that we have to preserve real public spaces, not, not commercially managed, not restricted, uh, uh, not restricted entrance to um, um, approachable and near to the people in the middle of the community. I think we have to do much more about that. Thank you very much. Uh, Benedetta, your own office is a wonderful example of a historic building uh, being reused. Do you see more of a trend to reuse and also picking up on Christoph's other point, <clears throat> do you see the sort of urbanism of uh, Barcelona with its uh, dense environments? Do you see that changing? Do you think we will change our attitude to density and mixing? Well, in, in the case of uh, reuse, uh, I think in, in, in Spain we are kind of very good because it's a, in a way it's a poor country. So we have always done our best to use our uh, the things which values at the maximum. And I, I love it personally, maybe because I have a kind of a romantic uh, feeling. I always like what arises from history to us. So I, I hope and we will be more conscious about the, the, the necessity and the importance of reusing. And I was very happy to listen to Patrick talking about that. And, and then about the public spaces. I, and I, I always think this pandemic, which I, I personally, but it's, uh, it's uh, making things also something positive coming out. For example, there's more consciousness about uh, the need of quality and the need of public space at every scale. Because, for example, when we were uh, inside our home, which was something that we couldn't expect, uh, we suddenly were absolutely happy to have a window with, with some sun arriving or uh, a balcony that you could uh, look outside. And, and then we, we started to, to rediscover that the roofs, Lona, for example, are like uh, the green space, the open space for the small community of the, of the house. And, and this can become incredibly value in a situation like that. So I think most of the roofs in Barcelona started to be well planted with flowers because we were all there and looking after what we had. And then in, in other scales, of course, uh, you, you value a lot what is the public space of the neighborhood and then a bigger public space uh, of uh, more uh, general to the city. So I think we became more conscious about the importance of all that. And to, to introduce something more, we became more conscious also about the beautiful uh, feeling that some natural material inside your house gives. 
So in a way, it's fantastic, no, that you say, oh, I love my house and I love my uh, some of my furniture and I love the things I've, I have put there. And natural material became very, very important. Let's say the wood, the, uh, the presence of wood, ceramic, nice material to keep next to you are very important. And, and also plants and animals. I think in a way we understand that the inside of our homes have to be more natural. It means more full of life. So I think this, these were things that we, we became more conscious about during this pandemic. They were existing Thank you before very much. anyway. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to ask Jeremy Melvin to pick up on this point about um, uh, light access to open air, which has been a bit of a theme this week with people talking about, um, you know, the, the modernity and the way that TB generated hospital designs. And in some ways, the idea of, uh, of, of clean air and sunlight and space and access to nature has never really gone away, but it's come back with a vengeance over the past 12 months. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, obviously, an awful lot of uh, the rhetoric around modern architecture in the early part of the 20th century was about health. And that then health meant daylight, uh, ventilation, fresh air. Um, in the case of uh, uh, Alto's Pineo uh, Sanatorium for sufferers from tuberculosis, it meant breathing in um, the vapors of pine forests, which was you know, at this point, there was no real treatment for tuberculosis. Um, and it was only relief that could be offered. Uh, and that, I think, it's very interesting how that can come back. Now, some of it can come back through simulation. You know, that the, in the hospitals at Perkins and Wilshave, the idea of having um, artificial daylight at the nursing station uh, was, was was quite an interesting idea. I'm not sure I really like it, but it, it's obviously a possibility which shouldn't be ignored or overlooked. So uh, I, I, I think that, that that's all coming back. Um, in London, at least, there seems to be a, a trend in the residential property market away from the dense, um, relatively recent development. There's been a lot of uh, residential development in London in the last 20 years, much of it around quite large developments of apartments, which may or may not have their own balcony. Most probably do have a balcony, but they don't have great communal space. And there's been a move back to the suburbs, which in a sense would reverse um, you know, 30 years of what's been happening in London, which is the centre is repopulated. And I think there is a, a very interesting issue here about changing lifestyles. I mean, in order to deal with some of the issues about carbon that, that Patrick and uh, Christoph have talked about, it's not just improving building, it's changing how we live. You know, are we going to eat the same amount of meat? Are we going to fly as often or not? Now, much of what has made London the preeminent city in Europe over the last 20 years has, has depended on, A, a revolution in food, uh, yeah, um, influence of uh, other European cuisines uh, to the rather stodgy traditional English fare, uh, and also the ability of people in London to go uh, on weekend breaks to other cities across Europe. Both of those things are threatened not so much by COVID, but by Brexit. And it's going to be interesting to see how those two things intermesh and whether they really do encourage people to change lifestyles or force people to change lifestyles, or whether there will simply be a creative way around them. Thank you. Well, let me bring in Alison Brooks on this, because, um, Alison, there seems to have been a bit of an assumption this week that in future 
uh, apartment blocks will you will inevitably have a requirement for if not balconies then possibly winter gardens uh, but some sort of access to terraces or courtyards or open space so that if there was any repeat of this ghastly pandemic, um, people could at least know that they would have access to somewhere where they could do a bit of exercise and indeed get some fresh air and perhaps a view of, of nature. Well, I think um, it, it would be nice to think that the, the mentality has shifted so um, fundamentally across the industry, I, I'm talking about the client group of the industry in terms of urban residential development. I, I think I think it will take, um, I think there's a lag, uh, there's a lag there in the sense that most of the projects that are being um, planned or developed at this moment, they're all based on, you know, the previous business model, the uh, project business model, market values, land values, all of those things, space standards. And I think it will take a long time to shake those off because the whole financial equation is, is based on the, the previous reality. But I think it, it will take effect, but it, it needs, I think, a really fundamental shift, even you know, far beyond just the notion of just having a balcony or bigger windows. I think... I think we, as a society, need to fundamentally rethink the whole idea of um, use classes and land use. That um, the pandemic has shone a light on so many things, including, you know, climate crisis and health um, issues, um, inequity, the race uh, issues that are. Um, also a, a kind of uh, bubbling uh, problem in our profession, in the design profession. But I think that the real, there are things that we've refused to see that will fundamentally shift the way we plan our cities and use our buildings. And, and that, I think, is about the converging of, of work space and production space with living space that we still talk like the fact that we're even talking about residential developments I, I don't think there's such a thing as a residential development anymore I think every residential building is uh, uh, is an office building or a place for startups um, it's incubator space it's it's a it's a really fundamental shift in conceiving of, of space and how we dwell and how we coexist and so I think that that also needs uh, legislative change. It needs market change. It needs um, just acknowledgement that cities can actually be more integrated, less segregated. Uh, we can be better neighbors. We can uh, create more economically diverse and healthy neighborhoods by just acknowledging what's already going on, but that the industry has been blind to until now. Thank you very much. Well, I want to turn to Maria Warner Wong in Singapore because I always take Singapore to be the kind of experimental ground uh, of, of urban thinking uh, in many respects. Uh, mm -hmm. So Maria, do you, do you recognize the, the issues that Alison is raising and, and what sort of discussion is happening in Singapore about building use and types and kind of 
hybrid and blended lifestyles? Well, you know, as you know, Singapore is a highly planned and highly uh, systematically developed and very dense urban environment. But the focus over the past year, uh, 10 years or so, has really been on increasing the per capita access to green space. So we're in a different developmental stage altogether, as are the countries in our region. Singapore is quite a bit more advanced, and almost 85% of the population lives in some uh, a relative degree of public housing, which is of a very, very high quality. So in the planning, the access to green open spaces and access to fresh air has been a very high priority. And I think that through COVID, what we've seen with a very high percentage of the population working from home or partially working from home has been that it's put the housing developments to the test. And I think that in a way, COVID has catapulted the conversation forward wherein the things that we've been you know, expressing alarm about over the past 20 years suddenly have become mainstream conversation that we feel a very high percentage of the people now understand and grasp. So what is actually going on in, for us is that we're trying to increase awareness of the importance beyond the embodied energy to the life cycle costing of projects and to really start thinking about architecture and its integration with landscape in a more regenerative manner. Now, we have the good fortune of living in the tropics where anything grows and it's an incredibly fertile and lush environment. So we actually do really aspire to having enormous amounts of green space per capita. And we have been developing green corridors, bicycle lanes, huge amounts of public spaces, nature reserves. And what we've seen happening over the past eight months you know, Singaporeans used to hang out in shopping malls and spend a lot of time in air-conditioned commercial spaces. But when they couldn't do that, a huge interest in spending time in open spaces has evolved. So now you see nature reserves packed on weekends. Um, people who work from home have time to go out and exercise in the morning in public spaces. So I think it's putting the city to the test. And maybe a lot of the ideas that had been developed and implemented over the past 10 years are now really being appreciated. People really appreciate the importance of having a good place to work or good work environment at home. Although homes by and large are very small, I think that they do have adequate air and uh, views and access to fresh air and areas where you can exercise. So I think that we're doing well. Um, we still have to keep moving forward. And I think that Singapore really does want to be exemplary in the, what it's achieving. We're working together with Patrick's team here um, on a project where we're developing a project that's going to be the first hotel to achieve or that's aiming for a super low energy uh, like green mark platinum category. It's a completely different and new level that's never been applied to a building in hospitality before. So we're very challenged. It's not easy. Uh, we're pushing the limits of the envelope and seeing what can be achieved in our particular tiny environment here. Thank you very much. I'd like to turn to Joe Noero to ask whether um, access to nature, access to air, whatever problems the country may be facing at the moment, at a kind of human experience level, um, is there kind of equal access to these things for all? There, there is, uh, Jeremy, but the question that I'd like to answer was the one you asked before, if you don't mind, which is what have been the big changes in South Africa? 
And I think there have been two because we've been through a period of great reflection. The first one was that, you know, under apartheid, uh, the whites colonized the black people through the apartheid laws. But since freedom in 1994, all of South Africa, whites and blacks, have now understood what being colonized means because we have been colonized by other large countries around the world. As an example, one of the most ubiquitous building materials we ever had in our country. I mean, it was used more prolifically than even bricks, was corrugated sheeting. Now we have to import all our corrugated sheeting from China. And it goes on and on and on. So what we are trying to do now is to build up our own inner resilience so that we don't have to be so exposed globally. Now, the way that plays out in terms of architecture is, for example, in a city like Cape Town, where we relied upon an international tourist um, market, which has collapsed completely and no longer foreigners who are on our shores. Um, it's caused our uh, um, uh, leisure industry to look internally to the country and to our borders to neighboring African countries. And what's happened is that there's been um, a huge burst of um, activity converting you know, relatively new modern movement office buildings, 27, 30 stories high, into low-cost hotels and, and low-cost accommodation. We're doing a number of them. And that's all our work at the moment, is taking buildings and converting them to new uses. But I think what's different from what other people have been talking about is our buildings, our old buildings are relatively new in the sense that they're maybe 30, 40 years old. They're not older than that because our cities are very new certainly in terms of the tall buildings. So what, what we have to do in South Africa is we have to bring people into our cities because they live on the outskirts. And living on the outskirts, the income thresholds are too low, so they really can't sustain themselves there economically. So we're trying to build up our city cores and to create opportunities for people to come and live and work there. So green space is really not an issue because we've probably got too much of it. I mean, only 15% of our country is, is urbanized. The rest is all open green space, so we've got plenty of it. But we have lots of work to do in rebuilding and building our cities up so they become coherent and they become equitable. And um, mm -hmm. I think that the mm -hmm. pandemic, if I can say the positive side, was that it caused us to wake up with a rude shock and realize that we can't, South Africa can't become uh, a service industry, a service economy where we're all waiters or bartenders or whatever it is. We've got to start making work for ourselves that go way beyond that and we can't any longer rely upon foreign uh, um, you know, foreign trade in order to support ourselves. So I'm not, I'm not anti-globalism, but I think what we're doing is we, we feel that we need to grab back a little bit of what we've lost because I think we're particularly vulnerable in Africa when it comes to um, trade with, with, with countries outside of Africa. So I think we, we, we're probably intellectually we're in a much stronger position than we were eight, eight nine months ago we've thought carefully about where we want to go as a country but we've got to find the wherewithal to achieve it and that's going to be the hard work which is going to face us in the next four to five years joe thank you very much for that um i want to flip back over to london and invite simon alford to make a comment about this balance between nature and open space you know london's wonderful parks its tradition of squares 
but what has happened in the last uh, 20, 25 years, which is increasing densification and increasing uh, population, are we successfully keeping these things in balance or do we need a bit of a rethink? Um, it's quite interesting to get the international perspective, just following on your question from what Joe was saying. Um, because I think Jeremy mentioned Brexit. It's quite interesting that how we have this short perspective. We, you know, London's been part of Europe long before the EU and will remain part of the world long after the EU. And, you know, Joe's talking about South Africa looking inward um, to actually generate a better future. Um, and, and I think there is something going on that is about rethinking the assumed. And the assumed to me is the knowledge of the last 20 years, because we didn't really air condition our buildings 20 years ago. Uh, we, we, we worried about density um, and we continue to worry about density, but actually London depopulated 20 years ago and has been repopulating and we're only getting back to the population uh, levels we're at now, you know, that we're at 20 years ago. So to me, this whole conversation, this whole, you know, time is, is about a consideration of generosity and tolerance. London's actually an incredibly green city and, and actually incredibly mixed, uh, you know, city in terms of, uh, a rich history of immigration and so I'm sort of optimistic that we need to build on what we have in a cleverer way and as Christoph was saying really you've just got to think about when we talk about building it's about use and reuse and tolerance of different ways of thinking about it there's a big retrofit campaign going on which kind of says if you don't retrofit it's bad well a lot of the buildings we might be unable to retrofit are those that were built 20 years ago that were too mean, uh, too uh, intolerant of the future. So I think what we're trying to do is make buildings and cities that encourage and enable adaptation to futures we don't yet know by people who are not yet born. And that's the longer perspective we've got. I think we had that perspective, you know, 50, 60, 80, 100 years ago. Two world wars probably knocked that perspective out of us and we became a much more sort of dynamic, brave new world. But actually, London is a really well-structured city. They say it's not a planned city. It is a planned city. It's just lots of plans put together over time. Um, and it is quite a tolerant city in terms of people and how those different plans come together. So. London's going to be fine. It will learn to, to, to trade in a different way. It's always probably been the most tolerant city in the UK. It will need to become more tolerant. I mean, it will need to become more generous. And to me, that's what we're talking about now. When we, as designers, we're talking about how to make buildings and places that are generous and tolerant of uses and ideas that we don't yet know. And for me, Actually, the, the big worries I have looking forward are big data and intolerance. And, you know, and I think that, you know, we've got to think about how we design for tolerance, but there's political tolerance and we need, you know, we need to think about that. Let me bring in uh, Jeremy Melvin at this point, because Jeremy, in the pages of The Times at the moment, there's been a big debate about, um, about this subject of tolerance. Um, what is the difference between tolerance and respect? 
uh, and asking some fairly fundamental questions about why anybody should show respect for something with which they profoundly disagree or which they may think in their own way uh, uh, is immoral. And this has raised a whole series of questions which I know that you studied in relation to 17th century history. Well, almost serendipitously, uh, I came across a book earlier this year by a young American but Oxford-based academic called Therese Bijam called Mere Civility. And <clears throat> it looks at the evolution of what she calls toleration, particularly religious but also political toleration, that became a necessity in Europe, but particularly in um, the island of Great Britain in the 17th century, where coming out of the Reformation, which of course had been intolerant on both sides, both the reformers and the um, Catholics, uh, and then of course England, Scotland, Ireland were torn apart by uh, political uh, factions in the Civil War in the middle of the 17th century. Uh, and, and then there was the whole issue of how do you put back not just the country, but how do you put back some sort of civility together? And this was at a point where the English colonial adventures were starting, uh, the uh, beginnings of the settlement in uh, what is now the United States. And uh, Bijan draws attention to the founder of the Rhode Island, what's then called a plantation, a man called Roger Williams, uh, who was in some ways the least tolerant person. He was uh, an absolute separatist, that means uh, the advocate of the separation between church and state. But he was also one of the first, if not the first, significant European colonists in the Americas to take Native Americans seriously, to learn their languages, to translate works, so that there could be some form of, of dialogue. Now, what Paul's referring to, the work I was doing, was particularly around uh, the uh, developer, early developer, 17th century, Nicholas Barbon, who was a, a very close contemporary of the architect Christopher Wren, but also other people involved with this project of putting uh, the, 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 the polity back together again, notably the philosopher John Locke. And the, 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 what struck me in this is that London evolved uh, or London had to deal with several shocks, political, but also, of course, the shock of the Great Fire of 1666, and then how do you reconstruct that? And there was something about the fluid nature of English political life and, 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 and political system of the time, given that it was in flux anyway, that actually allowed that to take place remarkably successfully. And what Simon says about London being... Um, a planned city, it's just a question of different plans overlaid in, in time, but also rubbing against each other in space, uh, comes from the innovations that Barbon made that were explicitly capitalist. He was, you know, an early economist uh, and a great advocate of what we would now see as free market capitalism. Um, but he was also working at the same time as Christopher Wren, who came from a very different sort of background. Barbon's background was very puritanical. Wren's was, uh, you know, high church monarchist, um, for which both his father and his uncle suffered. And of course, he, he benefited from royal patronage. Um, and it struck me that if you look at the plans of Wren's city churches, they are trying to put into practice in architectural terms some idea, not just symbolically, but some real resolution of toleration 
between the Presbyterian tradition and the Episcopalian tradition of Christianity, between the monarchism of uh, the political settlement as it was reimposed in the 1660s and the Republican uh, parliamentary-led um, uh, political system that, that didn't work but was tried to be implemented un under um, Cromwell. And of course, to recognize the um, enormous uh, liberating capabilities of capitalism, which were underwritten by people like John Locke. So I think there is something very fundamental about how we can think you know, as architects, which I'm not, but architecture can also interface with political thinking. Well, let me bring back Joan O'Hara on this, because this question of, of um, respect and tolerance, wh whether it's about architectural ideas or the way we should plan our cities or how we treat uh, different cities, citizens, um, is a kind of a, a sort of, it's a seamless condition. Um, if, if you can't have respect for a sort of architecture, can you have respect for a, a group in society? Joe, you've had to grapple with these questions, both as a, a citizen of South Africa, uh, you know, during apartheid and, and afterwards, but also working as a practicing architect at the same time. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I think that it's, a, in, in, if I'm, I can only talk about South Africa because that's the only place that I know and where I've worked, it's a very messy business. You know, we, we, we got our freedom uh, 25 years ago. We have an extraordinary constitution. We have a Bill of Rights that is remarkable. We have a whole range of things. And using those frameworks, we're having to learn to work and live together. And it's not easy. It's really difficult. Everything in South Africa is contested. But then I suspect, in a sense, in a form of radical democracy, that's what it's like. Everyone has a voice. And um, the, the, the thing that I think is needed is just time. Time for us to be able to begin to understand and, 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 and negotiate, learn how to negotiate with each other. At the moment in South Africa, we're not doing that very well. Because every group has a, feels they have a right to negotiate what they want, regardless of what other people might want. And um, I, I, I find it very exciting. I mean, it's, it's, it, could, it could just be that my nature, my temperament is directed towards working in those kinds of environments. So I love working in that kind of way. But I find a hell of a lot of people that I know find it really scary and, and quite terrifying and, and just shy away from it completely. So I suppose you've got to be temperamentally suited to it. And it's also about the historic stage, historical stage that your country is in at the time where these things start to emerge. I mean, one of the things that I've always been completely knocked out about London, for example, as a city, is how incredibly well integrated it is. I mean, you know, if you read newscasts and you see what's happening in the media, you think, you know, there's lots of problems. People get killed because of skin color or because of gang warfare, whatever. But, but I think you know, for me, the, 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 the large city that best epitomizes that question of tolerance is, is London. I really mean it. And, and I think we've got a lot to learn for how you've done it. There are lots of other big cities where we think they have tolerance and they have nothing. I mean, it's just scary to move from one part of the city to the other. So somehow you've got it right. And maybe it goes back to the 17th century and it sits in Wren's hands, Jeremy. I don't know. 
but something you did something right, I think. I want to ask um, Patrick Bellew about a, a current controversy um, which has is, is blown up involving a couple of the biggest uh, architects around Foster and Partners and Zaha Hadid Architects. And they have withdrawn from um, a, a grouping called Architects Declare who made some fairly explicit uh, suggestions about how architects should behave in relation to um, carbon and climate <coughs> change. And I wonder if you've got a perspective on this, Patrick, and whether actually um, is it possible for uh, responsible architects to, let's say, uh, design an airport uh, in the 21st century? And if not, why not? <laughs> um, well, we've, we've all started to spin all over our uh, internal um, conversations today because... Uh, it's something that we're um, wrestling with as well as a business is where, where do we, where do we sit in this um, very difficult question? I, um, I personally think it's a shame that they, that they feel they have to withdraw. And I think it's a shame that uh, we get to a point where we take out of um, play certain particularly important building typologies being handled by architects of great skill and, uh, and commitment and dedication. So that may sound a bit like I'm sitting on the fence, but I, I feel that the, um, maybe I'm not, I, I, I do feel that there is a need for good architects to be working on these massive buildings. They can they can make a good building that is, you know, if you're talking about air travel, for example, it isn't going to go away. I think the technology of air travel will, will improve enormously in the years ahead. It will still be a, um, a big carbon emitter. But I think we're never going to stop. It's the reality. realist to me says, well, even if we're going to reduce the amount of air travel, we will never eliminate it. And therefore, we need efficient hubs and efficient and effective transport interchanges to allow you know, people to connect um, between modes of travel and so on. This is not going to change. And we said, we need, I feel we need to be more be pragmatic and say it's going to happen. And we want our best minds focused on doing the best buildings in that space. Um, <clears throat> they, they, I think, as I understand it, they're leaving. Well, I haven't I haven't read all of the detail of why they're leaving, but I'm sure it's to do with the the sort of the the moratorium on aviation. And, and we we've been involved in a few aviation projects recently, and we still are um, going back to quite a while. Um, and it's always been an area that's, that's troubled us. You know, it's you, you we think you know should, what should we be doing? But uh, and, you know, it, it used to be the argument you would say that you know if we didn't do it, somebody else would do it, and we feel we can do it as well or better. And you might argue. You know, on our well-known project in Singapore, the Gardens by the Bay, did they really need to build um, two big glass houses and two big greenhouses? Now, um, Maria has talked very eloquently about how, how Singapore, um, the Singaporeans value those those sorts of uh, investments in, in infrastructure. I think we can apply a similar kind of argument to, to airports as being an, an, an something that's about what we do as designers. So doing them as well as we can, I think is still a valid argument. I think it's one that can be shot down. I, I would accept that. Um, that, to say that uh, you know we should, in, in sense, be just refusing to deal with them, but I do don't think that in the end will re resolve the problem. I think what we need to do is to step up the game in terms of how construction delivers very low carbon to deal with what we can deal with, and ex expect that the avi aviation industry is going to, in, in time, respond. And it already is, but in time, it will respond even better to the um, removal of. Um, carbon from 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 flight it's interesting that you know in, in ba and, and all most of the other airlines shutting down their old 
747 fleet. They, that, in a sense, in one step, they've taken away some very inefficient aircraft out of the system. And what's happening now, there are more efficient aircraft coming in. Now, I'm not an exponent of the aviation industry as, as such, but I, I do feel that this is definitely an area where we need to be sensible and figure out how, how we can make sure that the best minds are still focused on these tough problems um, and that with their experience. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much. I think it's a very fair-minded attitude. And I'm reminded that Andrew Wally of Grimshaw made a, an explicit uh, kind of defense of aviation uh, at, at WAF in Amsterdam um, in the sense that he pointed out that um, at a time when construction, let's say from the middle of the 19th century to today, uh, actually, in many ways, hasn't moved on very much. I mean, there are still recognizable techniques of manufacture and assembly, which would have been perfectly familiar to the 19th century. Whereas the aviation industry went from men running about, flapping their arms up and down with uh, artificial feathers attached on the end, uh, to landing a man on the moon uh, in 1969. And his question was, well, which industry do you think is likely to make the most progress uh, in moving towards um, uh, environmentally sensible uh, solutions, uh, aviation or construction? I think it's an interesting question. But I want to, um, I'm going to bring in Christoph Ingenhoven now, if I may, with a different question about a different form of aviation, which is to say uh, drone technology. And I wonder, Christoph, if you'd like to speculate uh, to the extent to which um, delivery in the future and even personal transport may be more about moving through the air uh, rather than driving cars. I'm a little frightened about that. I mean, because we, we tried to establish a drone port in one of our buildings, it was not possible because there are no regulations for that. There's not even an idea how these things really look like and how they work. I think there's a lot of rumors what we will do in the future, and there's a lot of uh, advertisement. Um, I think we we have been looking forward for another 15 years until these things really work in in our daily life, and there might be just another alternative kind of uh, transport. Um, add, adding as well to our uh, uh, to, to, to good things as to bad things. Um, let me say something to that kind of transportation thing, uh, airports, and, and, and because um, I, uh, I I would say I mean we all have experiences with provisional airports, right? And they work pretty well. Um, we had a big fire in Düsseldorf, for example, many years ago, and there were like ten structures just for making it possible to have an airport. And it was beautiful. <laughs> the thing was more direct and the thing was more uh, efficient. Uh, everybody liked it. Everybody uh, was like uh, tolerant with some difficulties that appeared. It, it was it was nice. Um, and, and they replaced it by a big modern airport. Why? Yeah. Was that really needed? I mean, is a new Berlin airport really needed? Or could we do that also with Tegel and with... With Temple Hall, I, 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 I think it would be, have been possible if you, if, you, if you take away all the shopping and if you take away all these things that you don't really need, um, yeah, why not? That, that, then you wouldn't need any new airport, I think. I mean, 
Um, so, and, and the architect is responsible for that. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, you can't say uh, if I'm not doing things, somebody else is doing that. I mean, this is a this is the worst reasoning ever. You know, you know that the worst reasoning ever. Um, I think we are responsible, and we have to say no sometimes, and we have to. Um, I mean, there's one other aspect maybe about transportation. If you look to um, to the cars and to the planes and the attractiveness of it, uh, where come come? Where does it come from? It comes from freedom, right? I mean, cars gave us a kind of freedom we never had before. And w would you get rid of cars? I don't think so. Would you get rid of planes? I don't think so. Um, what I think is it's very, very uh, impressive to see when there was the invention of the catalysator and, and then there was um, the diesel scandal and then there were uh, and a mask appearing with an electrification of cars. And, and these kind of events forced the industry to do the very best, right? And the movement was immense. Uh, now, even the fuel, uh, normal fuel motors are, are so much better than before. So I expect the industry under big pressure to, meet, to be much better. Look at the vaccine, uh, vaccine industry. Look, look at the pharmaceutical industry under that pressure. What, 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 they, what beautiful and wonderful thing they can do. So what we should agree about is capitalism is a very nice system if you set the right standards. But public and politics have to set these standards and have to be very, very demanding about how we will live in the future. And the industry will make it possible. I'm, tr I'm, I'm truly sure that that will happen. Thank you very much. Well, I'd like to bring um, Simon Alford back in on this because, um, Simon, your, your suggestion, which I think is historically absolutely valid, which London has indeed been a planned city. It's just that it isn't one plan. Uh, it, it's, it's many plans through time and space. And I wonder whether you envisage at the moment um, an ongoing uh, trend uh, towards the reduction, certain major reduction certainly, uh, of cars and in particular in central London and what you think the implications uh, might be um, for for urban design. Um, thanks, Paul. Yeah, I mean, I, I just thought I'd just briefly talk a little bit about that in terms of carbon um, and this debate, because to me it's an example of intolerance. And the danger of the debate, the way it's going, is people are not prepared to lift, listen or actually fully dig into views that aren't similar to theirs. So I don't design airports because I've not been asked to. Um, and I don't like shopping centres either. I don't design them because I've not been asked to. And I don't think either are particularly interesting building types to me. However, I have and will continue to fly on planes. I also noticed that you use more um, carbon driving a car solo than going by plane. So this attack on airports is naive and you know you could equally the people who are criticizing airports are using amazon which is using a huge amount of carbon uh moving goods around in cardboard that's 10 times you know the, the quantity of the material involved so there's intolerance and, and that's a, a real issue and we're not going to get into a smarter world 
unless we think really openly about carbon as the challenge and how we manage carbon while allowing people to continue to live their lives. And I think, you know, in London, uh, I don't, you know, I don't use a car. I do own one, but I use public transport because I can. And I use my car to go somewhere else relatively full with my family because I can't get there by train. So I think in the UK, infrastructure is absolutely crucial. If we want to liberate the road from the car, we've got to improve our transport system. And that doesn't include very large empty buses moving around at inappropriate times. So again, let's not ban cars and ban planes, particularly as I, I don't know anyone who's banned flying from their own um, holiday life. Let's start saying, how do we make a low carbon city work better? To me, we start looking at smart ways of moving people around through better infrastructure. You know, and we think about better designed public space. We think about cleaner air and the benefits of that. And we start talking about it as how do we benefit the human condition without, you know, exceeding, you know, what Christoph was saying, a sensible carbon budget. So diverting it into an intolerant hatred of planes or airports or cars is not the issue. The real issue is how do we enhance the human condition designing in a lower carbon way? And then we'll have a proper discussion and there'll be differences of opinions and we can allow the best ideas to emerge. But let's not shut down things through an intolerant and actually quite stupid pig-headed attitude. Thank you very much. I'd like to go to Maria Warner Wong to discuss this because um, Singapore uh, cars are extremely expensive to buy. Um, taxes are used really as a significant part of the public transport system. But of course, there is public transport also. Um, Maria, uh, are Singaporean attitudes to cars changing at all? Or is there still an aspiration that you know, if you've made it, you can buy one. I think that the younger generation no longer feel that a car and car ownership is a measure of success and achievement the way previous generations did, because they value leisure activities, the outdoors, sports and other things that they do. There's, I think there's just a lot more for them to do now that there's a lot more open public space and there are a lot more bike lanes and bicycle dedicated areas. So I think that the demand for automobiles is actually going to diminish. And I wanted to add on aviation that this is a country of 5 million people that has built five international airports in 50 years. So we literally have built added an additional international air terminal every decade that this, this country has been a country. Um, I don't think that we would be able to survive without air travel. The air travel growth is the our future because we're disconnected from the world and the only, only way we can connect with the world is through aviation. So I think that it's very utilitarian, it's a necessity and I don't think it's going to be diminishing here. But having said that, I think five airports is a lot and I think that that's going to be enough perhaps for the next 15 to 20 years if I'm not mistaken. But I think that people also have very different ambitions that now that the country is sort of reaching a point of development, a plateau of development, the younger generation's values are shifting as well. I think that the, the, way, the way that people were ambitious in the past 
is really the next generation has very, very different values. So I think we're going to see a shift toward much more diverse land use, a lot more recreational land use. And I don't think the country is going to devote more space to automobiles in their future master plans. Thank you very much, Maria. And I must say, here in London, young people, um, many of them can't afford a car anyway. But you know what? Even if yeah. they could, they're not interested. They just don't want them. They can yeah. fight, use public transport to get around the yes. capital with ease. Let me bring Alison Brooks in on this. Alison. Well, I, um, I totally agree that the value system, I think, is quite different of um, younger generations than the, than the current one. And um, I think it will be even more um, perhaps activist or more um, focused after the pandemic, after this time, because it's, it's actually brought to everybody's attention um, so many things that we weren't really aware of or paying attention to. And one of the things that the conversation about urban transport rings to mind is, is the issue of acoustics. And, and I think noise and the lack of noise, the reduction in noise when there was lockdown, at least in London, was a kind of incredible thing that... Um, everybody experienced the, the sort of joy of silence of of kind of peace in an in an urban situation and being able to hear birds and hear nature or just hear silence was kind of unbelievably soothing somehow and um so i think and then we equally we have problems with our acoustics in terms of our conversations and business situations now with with uh, video conferencing and the environments in which we work, which aren't very good acoustically. And so I think the, um, you know, acoustics is a pretty broad topic, but I think it's part of the equation of sort of recalibrating how we operate, how, you know, the environments in which we work and how they can, the conventions with which we've worked, you know, lots of hard surfaces, lots of reflective surfaces and transparency and glass and, and travel and commuting. And, and, you know, there's a lot of sort of, um, you know, violence, like acoustic violence and environmental violence that, um, um, you know, you can actually see a way out of by, by this massive shift, this ma massive behavioral shift that's happened as a result of the pandemic. And I think, I, like on a really optimistic note, I think the most, perhaps for the profession and for this um, um, conversation we're having, I, having, I think it's as a result of the pandemic, it's maybe the first time the architectural profession is having literally the same conversation as practically everybody else in the world. You know, it, everybody's had a kind of common cause, a common uh, threat, a common challenge. We all have a shared experience now with people on in every corner of the earth and every corner of the earth has faced uh, this sort of awakening and paying attention to these things, which which are not working and uh, which are unhealthy and which are restrictive and um, limiting. And so I think 
we need to really capitalize on this moment where we are having the same conversations as everybody else and and we sh you know we share the the threats we share the challenges and we're trying to embrace the solutions in a much more holistic way um which means bringing also clients and um you know the industry as a whole into this conversation you know these crises we share all these crises it's not exclusive to to architects and our profession thank you very much indeed <clears throat> actually i think that the, the question about um rethinking things and opportunities we heard yesterday on our question time panel from uh, francis anderton from los angeles we were asking a question about what had happened to traffic on the freeways and uh, was the was the commuter journey uh, coming to an end um, in that city. And she said what had happened was there was a big reduction in car traffic, but the consequence was that instead of people crawling along at eight miles an hour um, as they as they usually do, people could travel much more quickly. And people were going out and traveling for America really quite fast. And the consequence has been a huge increase in the number of accidents. Um, and it, I mean, one shouldn't, laugh, one shouldn't laugh at that, but I don't think we could quite help ourselves because, you know, that idea of the freeway actually becoming a freeway and people doing whatever they like uh, hasn't had entirely happy consequences. But just again, picking up this point about um, architecture based on health and amenity and well-being and time to rethink what our values are. I mean, Jeremy, this sounds kind of familiar from various times in architectural history, both, you know, at the start of modernism, but then perhaps more recently in the, the 1960s, we've, we've had a, a comment come in um, saying that, you know, everything, every, anything goes in the 1960s, a time of great freedom and great toleration and, and great respect in, in many uh, respects. And there was a, the question at the end of this was, um, is this concern with health and well-being and, and tolerance going to lead to a greater tolerance in architectural discussion or as we've heard in the great debate um, about airports, might, might there be more partisanship? I think it's a, a very interesting point to raise because the more one thinks about things in silos, health, education, even architecture and politics, the more people will self-identify or self-define. Um, and that is not necessarily... Uh, an absolute obstacle to tolerance, but it is a barrier to it. And I think that the rethinking needs to be at a much more fundamental level. Um, and we've got to lose these labels that we give ourselves and that we get given by other people um, because it, it, it's it convenient taxonomy rather than anything really fundamental. Um, and we need to think, uh, yes, of course, health, is, is, is an underlying issue that, that affects everyone, potentially affects everyone. Everyone has a state of health and it can be improved or it can be made worse. But I think that if we try to think in, in um, you know, silos of 19th century thought, basically, um, we'll be finished. 
what we've got to do is try and rethink the, the fundamentals and then possibly to create new silos of thought that may themselves be life limited as well. Well, this is a this is a very interesting point that picks up on a talk we had yesterday from um, Lars Krukerberg from Graft uh, Architects, um, who was talking about uh, identity. I mean, architectural identity, but also cultural identity, uh, and how those things can mesh. And I wonder if I could ask Joe Noero to comment on this, because of of all the societies in the world, um, identity. Uh, at the the transfer from apartheid to to the to the the modern South African state was one where questions of identity were were writ extremely large. I wonder if you have any observations, John, on how um, social and cultural identity feeds into uh, and may be aided uh, or or made more problematic um, by architectural design. Well, you know, um, I, I think, again, I think South Africa is unique in, the, in comparison with the rest of Africa, but we've somehow managed to find a way of dealing with this idea of trying to create an African architecture, you know, which always scares the hell out of me because there are 47 countries in Africa, so I really don't know what that means. But um, I think that the thing that is very important in our country is to give a voice to the people who didn't have voices before. And I think it's happening around the world. So, you know, the, the, the movements that have emerged during this period of uh, the pandemic. Um, and we need many more black women and other people in our profession to give expression to the kind of communities that they know well, the kind of issues that they feel um, uh, are, are um, important to them. In, in South Africa, unfortunately, uh, the architectural profession is probably the least transformed of all the professions. It really, I mean, it's still 90% white. And, um, uh, you know, it, it, so it, it's a very poor example to look at. But um, I think we're moving somewhere towards resolving that. Um, but what I, I don't want to do is I don't want to get caught up in this kind of good uh, work Kind of culture which is that you know you, you've got to be black in order to be able to design architecture for black people or it's only black people that have the right to speak about black issues i think we just it's that question of tolerance you were speaking about but to create the space for a variety of different voices to be heard and to be realized and i think that's very difficult i mean we're nowhere near achieving that in our country and i don't think we're doing it anywhere else in the rest of the world it's obviously much easier in countries where you have monolithic cultures, you know, uh, but um, in, in South Africa, we don't. And uh, I think we'd be a good test case to look at uh, in the future. But um, uh, Paul, I wanted to say one thing. I'm sorry I'm changing the subject because you spoke about the building construction and you spoke about air, airline uh, technology. And I want to, I, you know, when Jeremy was talking about fundamental um, principles, I was drawn back to the 70s and 80s when people were talking about convivial modes of production, of saying that there are, there are scales at which certain things are better produced at, say, a small scale than they are at a big scale. And I actually think that architecture is much better produced using localized systems of production rather than the sort of, you know, Norman Foster Big Bang theory of bringing 27, 120 
countries involved in the production of components, flying them in and sticking them all together in one building. And it's in fact the way in which the vast majority of buildings in the world today are being built, and they will continue to be built. And I think we've got to understand that there are scales at which things are best produced. And we, we don't talk about that anymore. And I drive for efficiency to produce something quicker and faster than anyone else. We lose all of that and it gets smoothed out and we get into all the kind of trouble we're facing now with climate change, producing you know, buildings that don't work, et cetera, et cetera. So I think a revisit to the 70s and 80s might do everyone a lot of good. They could look at Schumacher and they could look at John Turner and they could look at a whole bunch of others. I think there'd be some good lessons there. Thank you very much. Oh, so I had to say it because um, you offered that challenge when you mentioned your uh, comparison. Absolutely. Um, we've had a we've had an interesting question has has come into us, um, which is is saying could the could the panelists um, uh, with I think with the exception of Jeremy because it's unfair because he doesn't design buildings. But um, would each of the panelists like to um, comment on whether the um, re results of the, the pandemic and its possible results um, have meant that you've uh, changed the design of, uh, of, of a building that you're currently uh, processing. Um, let's go back to London, start with you, Simon Alford, because you've got a, lo a, a lot of work on. Is there any, any rethinks in respect of either um, spatial strategies or materials or products? Uh, yes, undoubtedly. Um, I think the pandemic, it's, it's, um, it's just triggered better thinking on everything. Um, so we were already designing buildings that offered something back to the city in terms of public space and public rooms. We were already designing buildings that had good light, good volume, good air, generous circulation systems, uh, less reliance on the lifts, uh, you know, things that uh, Benedetta was talking about, green roof, you know, we've, we've taken plant, what plant we have, you know, mechanical plant off the roof and put it in, into the basements. And then we've created, you know, green, green gardens on the roof in all forms, educational, commercial, residential buildings. But it's all stuff we were doing. The benefit is, goes back to what everyone said, the pandemic has sort of given a little bit of time of reflection. And suddenly, um, the idea that buildings are transitory has fallen away. <clears throat> and there's a new idea that buildings are long-term assets. And in that sense, need to have a real social and cultural value, as well as an economical value. So we're making much smarter buildings. But it, it, it's accelerated good practice. As Patrick said, to do that, we've got to really get into how we make them. So Joe's point about supply chains, you know, how do we move materials? How do we make buildings now? Do we make them differently? Yes, we should maybe get away from curtain walling and look at making the frame of the building, also the architecture, make windows part of an infill. We don't need to import products from greater differences. All these things, allow us to make a low energy building but a low embodied carbon building so it's a terrible time on many levels but i hope a lot of really good thought about what architecture is what it might feel like look like smell like and how you will make it is coming forward and the client on the project patrick and i are working on got a bit intolerant himself at times and was kind of complaining that we're a bit slow and i said 
it's not easy. We're on a journey. We're on a discovery. And if you want innovation, it's not immediate either. If you want us to make things in a different way, we need a bit of time to find out. Rather than the image of difference, the reality of difference, that requires thought, time, and adequate fees. Thank you very much. And just one supplementary to that. Can I ask you whether the, the world of touch-free and sensor technology um, is, is part of a trend you see accelerating? Uh, yeah, but again, it's we've been, you know, we've always had this thing, you know, if you can't see something, you won't use it. We shouldn't have doors. Doors should be opened and closed in the event of fire. So while something like fire safety is incredibly at the forefront of all our minds, particularly in a post-Grenfell world, it's all been happening. But I don't want a dis building to disappear into a world of excess technology. So there is an idea that fresh air will only be blown to where people are. But my point is, don't blow it in the first place. Rely on a window. So in my world, yeah. it's we're talking about caves rather than oil rigs. Buildings made of sensible volumes and thermally massive materials with low carbon, and that's a challenge, rather than oil rigs full of pipes solving the world's problems with technology. It's go back to a kind of very good model that served us pretty well for about 2,000 years. Basic building physics. Thank you very much. Um, Patrick Bellew, would you like to pick that one up? I wouldn't necessarily yeah. expect that you'd be doing anything different, but it, it, it may be speeding. Well, you may be getting more acceptance from more people. It seems to me, Paul, it's like you've um, read my script. I understand what I was about to say. I mean, it, it, the thing is that some of the things we've been talking about for years and years about putting air in from the floor so that you have you know, the air that you're getting at best pressure has not been recirculated. That's definitely changed with you know, the, 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 the push behind that has definitely been um, has changed thanks to COVID. There's a story about a, uh, one of the groups in America that worked through the uh, pandemic was the national labs in various places around the world, you know, Berkeley, everyone's standard. They had these national research laboratories and they were all there working away. And there was a lady who had a desk fan on her desk um, and she was a bit, her air conditioning probably wasn't working so well and she sat there with her fan going and she then got the COVID symptoms and she shared it with seven other people who were sitting in the downdraft, the backdraft of the fan. So she was actually blowing her germs across a group of colleagues in the same office and they all went down with COVID. Um, and uh, this is in one of the national research laboratories looking at uh, things against for, against COVID. But that's the same sort of thing we get in most of our buildings when you have air conditioning overhead and you blow cold air around and blow air around, something we've always you know, tried to push against because you're sitting in always in stale, dirty, mixed air. Whereas if you blow the air from the floor, it's not only more energy efficient, it's actually um, the age of the air and the freshness of the air is much better. And, and so we're certainly seeing nearly all of our clients are jumping back to that. Whereas our clients, you know, working at WWF years ago that had underfloor air, lots of our projects had underfloor air because it seems to be the right thing to do in terms of energy. Um, and we're now finding massive pickup on that in the London office market, which was very resistant to it before. So that's definitely a COVID and energy win, if you like, if, if one doesn't want to really be scoring things that way, but that's definitely been our experience. Thank you very much. Let's move on to, um, to, to Christoph. Any changes to any of your current projects? Yeah, I think we have to say that, that the green issues and the, and the energy issues have been there um, before and they will de develop and evolve. Um, but there are some um, 
some more specific things about the pandemic because uh, give an example i mean we will raise the the sanity and the hygienical standards of our buildings right you could have like door handles and things that are better than others you could uh, make sure that the uh, people can uh, use toilets and washrooms in a different way um, you have to provide more space in the uh, wider corridors um, you have to to look at like more outside spaces uh, Germany is not as privileged as San Francisco or South Africa so you, we have to take care for outside spaces to be comfortable uh, rain protected and maybe like winter gardens and things so um, we were always very interested in natural ventilation. I think natural ventilation, operable windows are essential. Uh, everyone wants to have that now. Um, so the very practical things that we have to change, and we already are working on that in, in, in the buildings that we are actually planning. Um, and filters, for example, is a, is, a, is a very important thing. If you put certain filters, think about schools and uh, and, and, and kindergartens and, and, and places like that, you have to provide very, very efficient filtering. Um, we talked about uh, um, planes. A plane in itself, in, in the cabin, is not um, a, very, a, a very dangerous thing because you have a very, very efficient uh, filtered um, uh, air and a special airflow. Um, so we could learn from each other how we could do that, how we could provide the best filtered and best quality air, um, not just air conditioned, but also like uh, natural ventilated, things like that. That's great. Thank you very much. Yeah, I still uh, talking. Alison, <laughs> can, can try to, to tell her that she's muted, maybe? <laughs> um, thanks, Paul. I think we will probably be able to change some of the projects that we're working on as they move into the next stage. We have quite a few projects that are in between stage two and stage three or stage three and stage four. And so there will be opportunities to renew conversations with clients and argue for things like more, more space, you know, more generous, um, uh, corridors or lifts. We've we've been arguing for high ceilings for very many years, and this principle of generosity being embedded into every project, so that it therefore is adaptable and therefore has longevity. This, you know, a lot of these things that I think a lot of architects have been arguing for for many many years are now being taken much more seriously. So I think, in a way, it's going to be, you know, our. Um, values, architectural values tied with uh, values around sustainability and, and low carbon and, and um, loose fit and long use, they will have much more strength now. We will have more agency. And so I think that's, that's, great. that's a really helpful yeah, position to be in. Thank you. Great. Uh, Maria Wong Wong. Okay, I'm not muted. Okay, so, you know, we had SARS here at the beginning of this century, and in Hong Kong it happened as well, and for the subsequent five to eight years, we saw a massive transformation in the building code and regulations, and also in the industry, the products, touchless products that were available. So, you know, we had such a tremendous scare at that time that it really 
forced us into action, but the action didn't happen overnight. It took time for product development to occur, for policies to change, for things to be tested and approved. But by 2008, I would say that ours was a, by and large a touchless built environment. So a lot of that I think will come in the next five years on a worldwide level because of this pandemic. Um, we don't have buildings that are changing right now per se as a result of the pandemic, because again, the codes are already there for the safe environment, for the touchless access and so forth. Um, and the other thing is that I'm not sure if you're aware that in Singapore, the entire hotel industry has been converted into quarantine facilities. So they've used it as a distancing tool, whether it's for construction workers who used to live in dorms or for you know people returning, residents and citizens returning from overseas who have to be quarantined for 14 days. So they've activated a lot of the real estate and actually made it possible to keep it in use, which I think that flexibility has been a very good thing. Well, thank you very much. And uh, apologies, Joe, but we've run out of time here in London. Um, can I thank uh, all of the participants, uh, including Benedetta, who is chatting away there, but I fear on mute, uh, for your time this afternoon. I think nearly two hours has gone incredibly quickly. Uh, we've covered a huge variety of ground. And from your many uh, different perspectives, I thought there was a remarkable degree of unanimity, at, at least on many of the subjects discussed. So thank you for your time at WAF Virtual, and we hope to see you all in Lisbon next year. Thank you very much, and thank goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. 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 Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye